want to remind you that next week is going to be a churchwide fellowship immediately after the service. We're going to kind of flip things around a little bit in here and make it happen right in this room. So I hope you'll plan to stay. Wayne Sykes will be making some of his uh, incredible barbecue chicken, and uh, we're going to have a great sides, and it's going to be a good time together. So I hope you'll stay. Jeremy's lining up some games. We're going to do some fun stuff together. And so that'll be next Sunday. So I uh, hope you'll stick around and be a part of that. And also today's Family Worship Sunday. And as I try to remind you, each uh, Family Worship Sunday, which is the first Sunday of every month, we uh, like to focus in a little bit on fasting. Now, fasting, unfortunately, is one of those things that the church as a whole, the universal church, doesn't talk a whole lot about. Uh, you know, asking Americans to give up th things, right, for their faith, that seems kind of uh, crazy, radical, right? But the scripture says, Jesus says, when you fast, not if, but when you fast. And so fasting should be a, a part of our routine. And so today I encourage you to fast from something that's going to make you more dependent upon God, focusing on Him. Maybe it's food, but maybe it's social media, maybe it's just screen time in general. Something that you can give up this afternoon tonight in order to allow you to focus more upon Christ. So I know that many of you participate in this, and I hope you'll do that um, today uh, as well. We're in John chapter 6, and we've been in this chapter for a while. We've been in the book for a while. We've been in the chapter for a while. There's a lot in this chapter. Let me catch you up to speed real quick before we kind of read some of the verses that we've talked about before we jump into the verses we're going to look at this week. And so Jesus in John chapter 6 has said that he's the bread of life. And verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So he set himself up as I'm the bread of life. They came looking for food from him. He fed them with the five loaves and the fish. He gave them a meal to eat, but that wasn't enough for them to believe. They still wanted more proof. And, but he says, hey, I can give you uh, this bread that lasts forever. And how do they respond? They're in verse 34, sir, give us this bread always. They're thinking bread, actual bread to eat so they won't be hungry ever again, right? Kind of like the woman at the well. Give me that living water so I never have to come back here again. And so they want this just bread every day, and Jesus is offering them so much more, but all they can do is think about the physical, because this idea of Jesus being the great I am, Jesus being able to offer them eternal life, is, seems very far-fetched to them, it seems impossible to them, and Jesus says, I am the bread of life, uses the personal name of God we talked about last week, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. So not only do they not understand Jesus' analogy here, his metaphor, they, more importantly, they just don't believe in him. They don't put their trust in him. And then Jesus makes this radical statement we looked at last week, and we're going to continue on this line today. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will not cast out. So, and then Jesus says he's on earth for his father's agenda. What God is doing, he saw, said that a lot in the Gospels. I only do what I see God's doing. He's there to fulfill God's will, setting a pattern for us as well to follow God's will, not our own will. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And in that is the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples and us as a model prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, as it is in heaven. And so Jesus is about God's will, and he says, those who will come to me come because the Father is the one who initiates it. So as we move to verse 35, or verse 30, I'm sorry, verse 37, uh, 38, let's pray, and then we'll jump into this new part of the text. 
Father God, I thank you for your word that gives us life, that gives us truth, that gives us hope, that gives us purpose. And God, it's easy in the, the cares of life, the troubles of life, the difficulties of life, the pain of life to take our eyes off of you and God, put our eyes upon the temporal, the, the short term, the stuff that really is painful and it hurts and it's difficult. But God, at the same time, you give us life and you give us eternal life. And God, I pray you'll help us today and help each person in here today who's struggling. God, I pray you'll help them to see that they can run to you and taste and see that you truly are good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. He's saying that he satisfies our hunger and thirst, most importantly, our hunger and our thirst to be righteous before God, that we all have this desire within us to be accepted by God, to believe in God, to be accepted by God, and the truly the stuff that we know this, the stuff of this earth, just doesn't bring satisfaction. Many of you are familiar with the name C.S. Lewis, very popular even in culture, British, as you can imagine from this statement he makes, you know he's British, right? He says, I cannot find a cup of tea which is big enough or a book that is long enough. And I love that quote. I mean, it just really, we know, we know, we can relate to that, what it means. It means the things that we think give us so much meaning in life are never quite enough. They never quite fill us up. All right, think about it. Plug something in there for you. It's not a cup of tea, right? It's not a, a book, maybe, but it's something that is going to ultimately leave you disappointed and wanting more, all right? Football season ends next week, all right? Some of you, like, your life ends next week, right? And it'll start up again when football starts again, right? Because you put all your hope into things, and then you dream and dream and, and hope, and then they come to an end, or something happens, and you're left disappointed. And we do this on, on social media so much. We look at other people's lives on Instagram, on Facebook, and we think, if only if I had that or I had their life or their wife or their husband or their kids or their situation that my life would be full and satisfied. But sorry, it's not because Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. And so Jesus promises to fill the void, this God-shaped hole that exists in every single person that he's made. Back when I was a kid, probably in middle or high school, we got the actual newspaper. It was delivered to our house. Some of you still may get that, all right? But uh, we got the newspaper, and so before school in the mornings, I would uh, first thing I would turn to the sports section, then I would flip over and find the Spider-Man comic section and read the Spider-Man comic. But on Sundays, they had a special section where the lady who was supposed to be the highest IQ in the world, I, her name is Marilyn Van, uh, Von Savant. Um, don't know who she is, but other than she was supposed to be the smartest person in the world at that time, right? And she had this question and answer column. And I remember one time, even as a young guy, reading somebody's question that said, is there really a God? Do you think there's really a God? Asked the smart person, is there a God? And her response was something to the extent of, there's something to be said that every culture that has ever existed in human history has worshipped a God or gods. And so her answer was, there's this God-shaped hole truly inside of all of us looking for something greater and bigger than ourselves. And Jesus says, it's me, all right? It's not me and anything else. It's not maybe those gods plus me. No, Jesus said, it's me. I am the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus says, you need to come 
and you need to eat of me because I'm the bread of life. So what does that mean? I'm the bread of life. I read this in one of the commentaries that I own as I was preparing for this message, and it says this, being fed by Jesus is so simple that in a world congested with busyness, it has become hard to understand. Like the pursuit of joy, the more we run after it with strategies and plans, the more it seems to flee. You know, there's a lot of religious substitutes for actually coming to Jesus. Things that we can actually convince ourselves that we're coming to Jesus, in reality, these are just substitutes that we put in the place of Jesus. I'm thinking of a few. Instead of sitting at the feet of Jesus, we place in there our religious efforts or religious activity. We replace being still and talking to Jesus with the promise to ourselves that we're going to, we'll pray throughout the day, right? We'll talk to God throughout the day rather than just sitting still at the feet of Jesus. We replace wrestling with the mystery of God's word with our favorite preacher or our favorite worship music. All these things can be, these things can be good things. Religious activity, great. Religious effort, even great. Christian music, great. Your favorite online preacher, probably pretty good. Praying throughout the day should happen, but it doesn't replace sitting at the feet of Jesus, being fed by Jesus. It requires a life that's willing to sit at his feet. A book that my wife, Michelle, was reading a few months back, caught the, the title was, it was laying there and it caught my attention, and I think I got this right. It was Having a Merry Heart in a Martha World. And those biblical insiders, if you know the Bible, you know exactly what it's referring to. Having a merry heart in a Martha world. Sisters, Mary and Martha, were both. They were hosting Jesus and his disciples in their home. And many of you know this story. Martha comes grumbling to Jesus because she's doing all the work. And Mary's sitting there at the feet of Jesus. And she actually, in her complaining and her grumbling to Jesus, she asked Jesus to make Mary help her be a good host of these guests. And Jesus told Martha that Mary's made the better choice and that he won't take that away from her. She was sitting at the feet of Jesus. God created us to enjoy a deep and intimate relationship with himself. And while works of service and hospitality, those things are incredible ministries, they should never eclipse our desire and our commitment to have fellowship and intimacy with Jesus himself. So Mary was eating of the bread of life, and Martha was busy grumbling about her ministry. So here in this passage in John 6, Jesus is offering himself to the people to satisfy their spiritual hunger, and look at their response. Verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that has come down from heaven. So if you follow with us through this section, through this passage, there's so much mention and allusion back to Moses, and there's so many references and subtle references to Moses and the Passover and the children of Israel. Well, Jesus does something interesting here in line with that same thing. He's been referring to this group of people around him as the crowd throughout the entire chapter, but all of a sudden now he switches it to the Jews. So the Jews, 
All right? You might not pick that up on a, just a cursory reading, but it's the first time that he mentions that. And he's, he's clearly pointing them back to Moses again and pointing them back to the children of Israel. Why? Because all they did was murmur and complain in the wilderness. You read through the Bible and you get to Exodus and you get to Deuteronomy and you see the children of Israel. You see a lot of complaining, a lot of murmuring going on. Even though God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt, he had delivered them, he had given them a promised land to look forward to, on the route there, all they wanted to do was grumble and complain. And the crowd here is grumbling. And they're grumbling because they can't believe, again, Jesus' claims. Even though he's done things to prove he is who he is, look at verse 42. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? We know that guy, Joseph, all right? We know about him. We know where he lives, whose father and mother we know. How does he not now say, I have come down from heaven? So Jesus has authenticated himself. He's revealed himself. He showed himself. He's given them plenty of reasons to believe that he is who he says he is. But they have Jesus, they have God in a box, and God could never do this. God could not stand in front of us like this. God couldn't be revealing himself in Jesus. Yeah, we just heard Jesus say he is the I am, but that's blasphemy. That's heresy. There's no way that's possible. So they couldn't break out of this. And the same thing is true for us. If we remove the mystery from our faith, we're going to find ourselves grumbling again and again and again because there's a lot of mystery in sitting at the feet of Jesus. For modern people, we don't really like mystery. We like things to be easy and solid and tangible and concrete. But a relationship with Jesus is not that way. And I just appeal to your relationship with your spouse if you're married. All right? If you just go through the routines and the motions of a relationship, you probably need to come see us in marriage mentoring for sure. Maybe you need to go see Chris Bean for marriage counseling. All right? Because if you're just doing the stuff and checking off the list, but there's no mystery in that relationship, then you've lost what the relationship was about from the beginning. Apologist Tom Price, he quotes A.W. Tozier and says, God waits to be wanted. And then he writes this, This may demand more of us than a historical investigation, doing church, or theological reflections, as great as those things are. But you will come to discover this clarity only through a living relationship with him. You see, a relationship with Jesus is about wonder, it's about worship, and it's about gratitude. And it's sad to point out the truth is that so many Christians are lacking in having honest-to-goodness worship before Jesus Gratitude before Jesus for what he's done for you and wonder at who he is. We've lost that in the busyness of life and schedules. And it requires sitting at Jesus' feet. It requires resting. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus said. Learn from me. And that's so foreign for some of you because you know what happens. Okay, I'm, I'm going I'm to do it. And it's mechanical, 
It's planning, strategic, and there's some elements of that that are definitely helpful. But then your mind just begins to bounce all over the place, and instead of prayer, you're Googling something, you're cross-referencing something, and those can be great things, but they can't replace being with Jesus, plain and simple. And so I'm going to preach this till I die, because it, we, we think there's such secrets here, but it is mystery, but it, it is about carving out time to be with Jesus, not just being busy for Jesus, not just going to church for Jesus. This last week, I went, M- Michelle and I, we, and Harrison, we went to Athens to see Colin play in his, his college ministry. I'm getting a little choked up here. And we go into the college ministry. They meet on Wednesday night. And this place is packed out with students. There is a Georgia basketball game going on a quarter of a mile away. And yet all these students are flooding in here to be a part of this college ministry. It's beautiful. And as they started singing and worshiping, you know, it was great. It was solid. But what was amazing to me was the fact that after they ended the, the message, after the talk ended, the band stayed and played played, and played, wake you up, and their student leaders, their interns stood down to the front and said, if you, any of you need prayer, if you need prayed over, if you need encouragement, come and pray with our student leaders down here at the front. And this went on for two hours. Two hours. College students. Yes, many peeled off. But I looked around, there were still, at the end of the time, there were still at least 150 people left, 200 people left in this room. Look, I'm as skeptical as the next guy. Part of me thought, you know, emotionalism, right? Getting caught up in the, the emotion of the moment. It was like, and then the critic, I mean, you know, how many of these students tomorrow will be, you know, cursing and, and living life just for themselves and this is all just emotional show and a gimmick. Or just, you know, they're just being moved by their emotions. There's nothing real here. And then I thought, you know what the speaker just talked about? Talked about being the older son in the parable of the prodigal son. And there I was, being the older son, critical of the move of God and the hand of God. Sure, we don't know. And some of you, you sit back and you're, you still love your intellectual knowledge of God to the point where emotion can never happen in my life because if you really know God, you can't be emotional, right? You've convinced yourself that logic is the way to go. I'm sorry. You need mystery in your relationship with Jesus. And it's not our job to criticize and to judge those who are choosing to be part of something, talking to myself here, over, they could go to the Georgia game and get super emotional, right? But they chose to be at a worship service. And it was awesome. And I felt guilty the fact that my heart was so hard. Jesus said this in Matthew. He said, the people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Do you have a heart-to-heart, honestly, 
Is your heart hard? Do you sit here and it's just so old taste and sees being done so well and so beautifully? Well, it's entertainment, right? We're being entertained. Hello. Worship God. Embrace the mystery of what God is doing. Embrace his person. Sit at his feet. He's the great I am. He's the bread of life. You can't logically get your mind around that. The bread of life is who he is. And the Jews were unwilling to worship him. They, like a lot of people, wanted to be consumers of miracles and consumers of the signs and wonders that he was doing. But they were unwilling to respond in what Jesus wanted them to respond, which is to worship him and see that he is God. And they were unwilling to do that, so they rejected him. But Jesus didn't panic at all, I said last week. Jesus didn't panic because there wasn't widespread response to what he was saying. He wasn't discouraged. He didn't question his methods. He didn't wring his hands over this. Instead, he calls out the crowd for their grumbling. Do not grumble among yourselves. He calls them out because they're grumbling about what he's saying. And God's methods often leave people totally bewildered in the way that he works. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to do right here with them in verse 44. And we touched on this last week. Come back to it in force today. He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in, on the last day. Jesus knows that the ones the Father gives him will come to him. That's why there's no panic in Jesus. Today's Family Worship Sunday. You know, I like to have kids be involved in Family Worship Sunday. I like to get one here up on stage to be part of, um, of Family Worship Sunday. And so we like to demonstrate that with kids. And so uh, would anybody like to come up here? Jackson's coming. Yeah, thank you, man. Thanks for coming, Jackson. Appreciate that. You all know Jackson? Cool kid. Come here, man. Why'd you come up here today? Because my dad told me to. Your dad told you to come up here? You laugh at what you do not understand. <laughs> he came because his dad told him to. I extended the call, right? I said, Children's wor Family Worship Sunday. Kids, come on up. Any kid, you know, you want to come up, be part of this? Jackson got up because his dad told him to come up here. Let's don't overthink this. That's what Jesus just said. He said, those who respond, respond because dad says, go, right? Dad says, go, and we go. Did you walk, did your dad carry you up here? How'd you get up here? Walked. You walked up here. He walked up here. He came to me, walked up here, but his dad said, go, Jackson, right? Thanks, man. Give him a hand. That's what Jesus is getting across in this passage. And here's the thing. God doesn't drag people to Jesus kicking and screaming against their will. Nobody comes to Jesus unwillingly. But God works in their hearts. And God is the one who is the main mover. He's the mover of the heart. And so Jesus can rest in his mission because his mission is what? 
His mission is not to get a big crowd. His mission is what? To do the Father's will. To do the Father's will. So there's no panic because the Father's will is going to be done because the Father says, here's who I'm drawing to, to Jesus. Go, be with Jesus. And when Jesus doesn't fit into our box, there's people that leave churches over this sermon right here, this passage of Scripture right here, because you can't handle the fact that Jesus will not be put in a box and God will not be put in a box. And there's mystery in this. And God, in your mind, seems unfair. So what do you do? You grumble and you complain, you moan, you whine, you protest, you speak out against God because it seems like it's not fair. Dallas Seminary professor Daniel Wallace says this. He says, the mystery of election, and that's what's called election. Election means dad says go, he elects him, he comes. The, doctrine of ele- the mystery of election is that God can choose unconditionally, yet our wills are not coerced. We are persuaded by the Holy Spirit to believe we have the sense of free will in the process. That's the mystery. It feels like it's us, right? Think about your time of salvation. Think about it for a second. Think about when you came to Christ. It felt like, like I, I'm doing this. I'm making this decision to come to Christ. But God is at work, and he's the one that's stirring and moving your heart. I'll come back to that in a minute. And so we can grumble and, because we don't understand it, we don't get it, or we can respond by saying, standing amazed in the presence of Jesus, the Nazarene, and wonder, get this, and wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned, unclean. God, how could you love me, a sinner, condemned, unclean? It's amazing. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. When I was in eighth grade, middle school, Love playing basketball. Love playing basketball. But I, I was super short, not so stellar in my athleticism. But I had a great friend, and his name was John Thompson, two years older than me, best athlete hands down in our school. We go to play a pickup game one day. We're in an outdoor court. And, the, of course, the captains, John Thompson's one of the captains. Another guy's the captain. Gets to John's first pick, John Thompson's first pick. This is not exaggeration. It's not preacher makeup stories. All right, this is true. He says, I'll take Woodrum. All right, there are a lot of better basketball players standing around me. But he picked me because he wanted me. He picked me because he liked me. He picked me because he was my friend. Not because I brought any stellar game to the table. He picked me because he picked me. And he loves me because he loves me. Because he does, right? He just loves us because he does. He loves me as sinner, unclean. And so many Christians just recoil at this, what, what we refer to as the doctrine of election. They just, they just can't stand it. But let me, let me say this. In hindsight, I think every Christian in here, true Christian, you will say 
that you would admit that God's been working, seemed to be working in your life long before you put your faith in Jesus. There was something going on. God was doing things. All right, my dad's probably going to watch this or maybe watching it right now, all right? So we're going to, my dad, he, we, you can call me later and you can tell me if I get anything wrong on this. But my dad, he, he doesn't like to hear about the doctrine of election, all right? Uh, he, he just doesn't like it. It doesn't make sense to him. He struggles with it. And I try to, under, to help him understand there's a paradox here. We just can't get our minds around. And, but he'll be the first to admit, if you talk to him, his salvation was radical. I mean, God took a guy who was in his, well into his 30s, an ex-Marine, just a, a tough man who grew up in a tough place, and God just broke his heart. But after he came to Christ, he'll say, wow, all these things were happening in my life. God was doing some incredible things to just woo me in. But he, he still has, a, he has trouble with this concept. But Jesus says, look, it's, it's, it's easy, it's clear. Nobody comes unless the Father draws them. And here's another thing that's important if you're struggling with this today. Election doesn't create the problem. It only leads us to think about it. All right, follow this, all right? Tim Keller says this, to deny the doctrine of election does not help you escape the issue. He says, a person who doesn't believe in election faces this dilemma. God wants everyone to be saved. God could save everyone. God does not, all right? So you're still in the same situation regardless of whether you think you're saved by your choice or by God's move or some mysterious way that he does it in both using both of these things, our responsibility and our move to the call and his work behind us, you still face the same question. Why wouldn't God save all if he has the power and the desire to do so? All right, why doesn't God save all? So allow this to just to, to, to let you go deeper into the word. I mean, let me tell you something here. Don't believe me, okay? In, in fact, I'll go even broader and say, don't believe anything that I say ever, okay? Honestly, I, I'm not joking about it. Don't believe anything I say, and don't believe anyone for that matter. Here's why I, I say that. Look what Jesus says next, verse 45. It is written in the prophets. He's appealing to Scripture. And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except for, he, for who is from God, that's himself. He has seen the Father. So Jesus quotes Isaiah and Jeremiah from the Bible. And he points to the fact that, that this all, and he says, and they will all be taught by God. So he quotes scripture to reinforce the nature and the character of God. And, and it shows us a couple of things here. It shows us that God's word is powerful, and it shows us that God uses his word to give us faith. That God uses his word to give us faith. So Jesus appeals to the scripture. And so that's why I can say before you today, don't believe what I say. In fact, don't believe what any preacher says, because God has given you his word. And as we learn in, in the New Testament about being Berean, Roy, right? Being Berean, that the Bereans, they searched the scriptures to see if what was being taught them and given to them was true. And that's what you should do. And, and, and the worst case, even if you end up not agreeing with something I say today, at least it, the win is you're going to be in the word, right? And faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God. And you can sit at Jesus' feet and you can humbly ask God to teach you and test what I say and what anyone says against the Word of God. 
And then finally, look at verse 47. Again, it's just the paradoxical nature of this. Look, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Whoever believes has eternal life. So Jesus is eager to give life and renewal to anyone who embraces the simplicity of the gospel and run to Christ for all that he is for us in the cross. Embrace the gospel. And what happens when we embrace this, that we're undeserving, that we did not do anything to earn it, that it's God's work, then all of a sudden gratitude fills our heart because we let God be God. We let God be God and we stop our grumbling, we stop complaining, because I can assure you that if you think God isn't fair, you're going to think a lot of things in life aren't fair. And you probably are a grumbler who grumbles about a lot of things. Yes, life is not fair. It isn't. DJ and Deanne, is, is life fair? No. Today is a two-year anniversary of their little girl being born, stillborn dead. It's hard. It's difficult. But you trust God. And you believe in him. And you put your hope in Jesus. And you sit at his feet. And you say, I want this eternal life. And he gives you it. And you feed at his feet. And you know him. And there's great mystery in that. And look how Jesus closes out this section. He just makes another appeal for them just to believe on him. And he reiterates, I'm the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Verse 48 and he, and he points back again to Moses in the wilderness. He said, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died, all right? They put their hope and faith in Moses, and they put their hope and faith in the Old Testament. But God was doing something new and mysterious in Jesus. The mystery that had been hidden for, for, for all of time and is now alive, Christ in us. Scripture says, the hope of glory. And Jesus says, they died. But he says, this and he's pointing at himself. You can see it. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. I'm the one that came down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. I came. I came from heaven. Trust me. I came from heaven. I'm God. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for this life of the world is my flesh. He says, I give you myself. He makes it real simple. We say it this way here. It's all about Jesus, right? It's all about Jesus. It's all about him. And Jesus said, trust him. Put your hope in him. Eat at him, at his feet. Be at his feet. The hunger and thirst in your heart, only he can bring satisfaction and fulfillment. Is there pain in life? Is there mystery in life? Is there difficulty in life? Absolutely. Jesus knows. Why? Because he suffered and died for us. So we live for him. And just to, to, to close up, I just want to tack this verse on because it, it, it's such an illustration of the paradox that we see here. In 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul writes this, Therefore I endure everything... For the sake of the elect, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may attain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. 
So Paul is killing it. He's traveling the world. He's putting himself in harm's way again and again in prison, beaten, stoned for the sake of the elect. See, so many people criticize and they say, well, if God does the work, then why do I have to do anything, right? You're like, I just, like, God does it. Like, God, first of all, told you to, right? And then we learn from Paul's example that some way in God's mystery, he uses us in the process, much, much like he does our prayers, right? Does God need you to tell him what's going on in your life? He knows. He wants you to tell him. And he's working things for his glory and your good in his mysterious way. But he still wants you to come to him humbly in prayer and seek him and petition of him for answers. So embrace the mystery. So head, heart, and hands. Rest in Jesus. And by rest in Jesus, I mean really seek him. I think the biggest grumblers I know are the people who don't sit at the feet of Jesus. The ones I know personally know their story in their life. It's easy to be critical when we're not sitting at the feet of Jesus. In our heart, just stop grumbling. Start allowing yourself to just to bask with gratitude in the cross and what he's done for you. See the cross every single day. Look at the cross every single day. Remind yourself, preach the gospel to yourself that you're undeserving, that you're lost, destined to hell, but God, but God intervened. And in that, your heart begins to change. And instead of talking to yourself all the time, complaining, grumbling, I can't believe they get that and they have this and their kids are like this and I've got this. Instead of grumbling to yourself all the time, all of a sudden start preaching gratitude for the cross to yourself. You'll be amazed at what happens in your life. And then your hands today, very simply, we're going to take communion. And you're literally going to take your hands and you're going to pull out the little wafer and it represents, doesn't become Jesus' body. It represents Jesus' body. And the juice, it represents the blood that Jesus spilled for you. But there's something just mysterious even about taking communion. That when we, with our hearts in the right place, we take it and we remind ourselves that we deserve nothing. And because of Jesus, we have life. We take it with a new meaning. And you've taken it, many of you, hundreds of times. But it can be special and meaningful today. Because you say, he's the bread of life. And I'm just going to eat and find my nourishment in him. I'm going to drink and find my hope in the gospel. And renew myself once again. It's a renewal. That's why Paul says, examine yourself. See if you're in faith. Yes, Yes, that's directed toward those who may have been in the community who were not believers. Don't take it. He's saying if you're an unbeliever because bad things could befall upon you if you take it and not knowing Jesus as your Savior. That's God's words, not mine. It's mysterious, right? Supernatural and it's mysterious. Seems crazy in our modern day and age, but that's what Scripture says. But it also has to do with, I think, Christians, hear me out, Christians who you're embracing known sin in your life. There's no repentance. There's no turning it over to God and, and, and seeking 
victory every time you fail. We're talking about you've embraced it. You're living it. And that qualifies as being unworthy. In fact, it's a, it's a dangerous place to be, a, no, a, a professing Christian who's embracing your sin. So confess. Maybe today is you come to God. For the first time, you take communion and you are embracing all that God is for you in Christ. Today is maybe the day of your salvation because God's wooing you and drawing you. And something's different today. And you, you just know you're tired of being the fake and the pretender. Today, this means something. And you put your faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that makes us a little uneasy, uncomfortable. But we need that because we default to our busyness and our screen time and our crazy lives, our kids' schedules, all the things that we plug in place to try to find that fulfillment. But it's a cup that always runs empty. It's a book that always has an ending. And you say, come to me. All are heavy and beat down. Come to me. You said you'll give them life. You'll give us life. And God, today as we take communion, as we take the Lord's Supper, help us to remember the body that was broken for us on that cross, Jesus. And as we drink the cup, help us to remember your blood, the new covenant that gave us life, eternal life. Thank you for you, Jesus. And today we celebrate you, we worship you, and we thank you.